Hey, before this episode starts, I just wanted to let you know that this is going to be a two-parter. Our conversation was so good, so long, so interesting. I didn't want it to stop, but I also thought it was going to be too long for just one episode. So there's going to be part number one, and then part number two is going to come out in a couple weeks. I just want y'all to know now that this episode can get pretty rough at times. It can be really tough to listen to. We talk about some stuff that's just really hard. So if things like violence against sex workers or drug mentions are things that you aren't ready for right now, maybe give this one a skip and we'll catch you next time. If you do listen, I hope you'll find it interesting and useful. I know I did. It taught me a lot about what people who are not sex workers should be doing to support sex workers, and I think that's important. So without further ado, here's the episode. It's coming. Here she is. Hi, my name's Christina, and I've been having sex for a while but I'm always worried I'm not any good at it. So I talked to a sex therapist who told me a lot of people actually feel the same way. They just don't talk about it. So here I am talking about it. The best is yet to come is here to celebrate and normalize sex and pleasure in all its beautiful forms. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Hi, hi, hi. My guest today is Gloria Steele. They're a veteran sex worker and a vintage goddess. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So happy to have you on the podcast. Before we start, could you tell me your pronouns? Sure. She, her. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for asking. Yeah, of course. So how did you get into sex work? Oh my gosh. It was something that I was always very curious about. I'm 47. So I was born in 1974. I grew up in the Detroit area and When I was growing up, it was during this porno chic era where every town, every city at that time had a lot of porno theaters and shops and stuff like that. So it was always around. And then you had all these cop shows on TV, like Miami Vice and Starsky and Hutch. And there were always hookers in those shows, like street-based workers. And they were always dressed really flashy. And they were these badass women that were really flashy and sassy. And usually in these shows and whatnot, the cops would go to them to get inside information and these women were just portrayed as these sassy outlaws. And I was always intrigued by that. And then over the years growing up, I learned that's something you don't want to do. That's something that you shouldn't ever want to be. That's the worst thing you can do as a woman is to be a sex worker, to be a stripper or whatever. And I was still always very intrigued by it because here's this thing that is against the law that has all this stigma, but then people are still doing it. Sex workers seem to have a lot of power to me. It's so interesting that it was both everywhere, but also don't do it. But yes, sex workers seem to have like a lot of power. They're the ones with the hot goss in all the cop shows. That's still a thing. Yeah. And then as I got older in high school and I was involved in the punk scene and the goth scene in Detroit, I met some women that were sex workers that were mostly strippers and dominatrixes. And they were these beautiful goth girls, punk girls that always had money. They were usually in school. I knew a couple gals that were in art school. And one of them, I remember, she was a dominatrix and she always had a lot of money. She didn't have to work all the time. It wasn't friends of mine that worked in coffee shops or restaurants or something where they 
they're constantly working and always exhausted. She would work a couple days a week and she would go to Europe for vacations and she had plenty of time to do her art and had her own apartment and everything. And I remember thinking like, wow, she's going on. And she was this really sexy, voluptuous goth girl. She was queer. And she would tell me stories about her job at the dungeon. I also had a good friend who was gay and he was a leather daddy. So... He was the one that was introducing me. A lot of his friends were sex workers. So it was kind of like, oh, well, she's doing this work and she seems sane and she seems to be having a really good time with it. My friend that was a leather daddy was also a waiter and he would always have all these stories about a-hole customers and stuff like that. And he worked really hard. And I worked in a restaurant at that time too. There was a certain appeal to sex work from what I was seeing at that time. And it was always in the back of my mind. It just seemed very rebellious. And my friends that are doing sex work. They're making good money. They're having fun. They're not exhausted constantly. They're able to live their lives. They're able to pursue whatever creative projects or school. And there was just something about it that really appealed to me at that time. And also reading more and more about the early days of the punk scene in New York and LA. There were always women who were sex workers involved in both of those scenes. Because if we're not following the rules, then I'm a woman. I might as well go make my money this way. Yeah. The way you're describing it, goth woman with money money who goes to (laughs) Europe and does art that sounds pretty sick I like her I want her to be my friend (laughs) I wonder where she is now (laughs) I hope in Europe doing art that sounds pretty rad or somewhere living happily ever after with all of her memories and her art (laughs) so can you tell me about what your first experience with sex work was Sure. So I graduated from college and my BA is in women's studies and philosophy. And I worked in social work for several years and I was always very interested in doing sex work. And over the years, I met a lot of different sex workers, some who did conform to a lot of the stereotypes that people have about sex workers, especially a lot of my residents when I was in social work. But what I saw there was that this is a woman doing what she can to survive in her circumstances and she deserves respect and she deserves safety. I also, in my personal life, had met a lot of women that were sex workers that seemed to have more agency. So I always had this idea in the back of my head that I wanted to try it. And over the years, I got more involved with learning about it and getting involved with activism and reading about different types of sex work and work, whether it was books or art that was made by sex workers. And I always wanted to be a good ally and support it. I was also very, very large for a long time. My biggest, I was a size 26, 28. So I, of course, I assumed I could never be a sex worker because I was always like, well, I don't have the body. No one would want me, which now I know is not true. So flash forward to 2005, I'm getting ready. I'm moving to the Bay Area. And I remember thinking I had lost a lot of weight for various reasons. It took me years, but I thought, I wonder if I could give sex work a try. And I was over 30 at that point. I was 31 when I moved here. But one of the first things I did when I moved out here was I auditioned at the Lusty Lady, which was a peep show in San Francisco and North Beach. And they were famous because they were unionized and they were a worker run co-op. So that was my first real experience with sex work firsthand. And I auditioned, I was terrified. And I was also still struggling with my body image. And I didn't get the job, which is what it is. So I didn't get the job, but I didn't want to give up on doing sex work. I already did this audition where I danced on the stage, which was enclosed. 
exposed in glass. It was like a fishbowl and you had to audition nude. So just wearing shoes and I already did it. So I might as well keep on with it while I let go of this thing that I want to do. I've already broken through with myself a little bit. And then the following summer, I went and I worked at another strip club, which was a traditional strip club. And it was in the Tenderloin. And that was a pretty interesting experience. I learned pretty quickly that stripping is not for me. Yeah. Can I just say, go you for fucking trying the thing. And then even at your first rejection being like, I'm still going to do it. That must have been really hard to put yourself out there and be rejected and then bring yourself out there again. That's really cool. Yeah, thank you. I was very tenacious about it. And looking back, I was really bound and determined to carve out a path for myself in sex work. I was like, I know I can do this. I know that I can. And I just have to figure out which avenue will work best for me. And I had a lot of ideas about why I wanted to get involved in the sex industry. I think part of it too was I'm a little bit older. I am definitely more on the voluptuous side and I want to prove that a woman who looks like me can be sexy in a way that is commercially viable, that there's a demand for an older, more voluptuous woman who might not be traditionally beautiful, but yeah. And because I'd known so many other women over the years, part of me was kind of like, well, if she could do it, I know I can. I would love to go back to you at, <laughs> what did you say, 31 years old and be like, listen, talk to you 15 years later. I know. <laughs> You, you did in fact make it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, I feel like I might've made a mistake in this podcast by starting in medias res. I think I don't really want to go back here because you've okay. talked about activism and getting your bachelor's in gender studies and philosophy. Let's bring it back. Can we talk about that? I know that activism has played a really big part in your life and has mm-hmm. influenced your decision to go into sex work. Let's start there. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. I've always been a feminist. I was raised in a very hippie activist household. I would say that my dad was a little more on the radical side than my mom. And I was thinking about this earlier today before I came over. My parents, they encouraged me to watch the news and to read a lot and to always stay informed and to know not to trust the government, that the police aren't your friends. And most kids that I grew up with, they didn't have that from their parents. Maybe like consciousness? Yeah, consciousness. Because my parents are immigrants, so Mm -hmm. they're very much trust the institutions. That's Mm -hmm. all we knew when we came in. And then that's what they go for. They're so very, they love police. Oh boy. Yeah. They love governments. I don't know if they love governments, but they do think pretty wild things about governments. My dad was like, I think Biden or Trump are essentially the same thing. And I'm like, whoa there, dude. Anyways. um, Yeah. My dad had never supported the war in Vietnam, for example, but he got drafted. So when he came back, he got very involved in the anti-war movement and then also really involved in the Black Power movement and civil rights. He did a lot of work with the Black Panthers in Detroit in the early 70s and was always pretty vocal. And so my parents, I would say they were both feminists. My mom is more of a liberal rather than a radical leftist. Okay, yeah. And of course, like most people, she's gotten more conservative as she's gotten older. So when I was growing up, it was always this idea of you can find your own way. You can do what you need to do. Don't listen to the government. Some of your teachers are going to be wrong. You still need to be respectful of them and get your grade. So I think that rebelliousness was always there. And my mom was very open about things like menstruation and childbirth and breastfeeding, but not about sex and sexuality. But anyway, so I was really involved in feminism and abortion rights activism and things like that with my parents. And then I came out as queer when I was in high school and did a lot of activism around that. And that was in the early nineties at the height of the AIDS crisis. That was stuff I was doing when I was in high school. And yeah, I knew I wanted to major in back then it wasn't called gender studies. It was women's studies. 
studies or feminist studies. So I majored in women's studies and philosophy. And I remember my parents were really supportive of me. And they were like, we know you'll find a job. We know you'll do something really great. Because a lot of my peers were like, oh, my parents would never let me major in something like that. I had a good friend whose father insisted she major in engineering because that job market was really blowing up at the time. And she was really great at math and science. And she was miserable and was failing all her classes because she's like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. So I'm grateful that my parents were like, follow your muse, do what you need to do. I know it'll work out. I've seen a lot of that in my peers or my cousins, for example. My mom really wanted to major in journalism and her dad forced her to go into chemistry. And when I talked to my cousins back in China, I think the job market in China is extremely competitive right now. Mm. So I have some cousins that are just eking their way through a computer science degree. But I remember being in college and remarking to my mom one day over dinner, I was like, huh, Not a lot of Asians in that creative writing program I'm in. Not a ton of us. A lot of white people. A lot of that. And she was like, daughter, most Asian parents are successful in gently steering their children towards a more profitable and fucking reasonable degree choice. Don't know where we went wrong with you, but here we are. Joke's on her. I'm employed. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) And you're killing it. But yeah, and so the women's studies department at the school that I went to, Western Michigan University, and this was in the mid-90s. The women's studies department was really steeped in 70s feminism. And oddly enough, I was one of the few out queer people in the program, but it was a lot of what I tend to call like granola feminism, 70s granola <laughs> feminism. So it was very- oh, please. Please tell me, what is 70s Granola Feminism? Yeah, it was a lot of writers like Andrea Dworkin and Mary Daly and Betty Friedan, like the feminine mystique. And I'd read a lot of that stuff when I was in high school, but there was a lack of embracing of sexuality and sex work. Sex work was something that we were reading Andrea Dworkin, who was extremely anti-sex work and anti-porn. And then I was the annoying person in class who was like, but what about Annie Sprinkle, who had been a sex worker for years and is still around feminist artist and Susie Bright, who was another queer sex writer who founded On Our Backs, which was a lesbian porno magazine, which was amazing. And so I was always the one that was this queer punk rock girl that was wearing fishnets and garter belts and trying to bring in the queer sex aspect and talking about BDSM. And yes, this can be feminist. And that wasn't really encouraged in that department. But anyway, so... answered your question. No, this is all really interesting. So it seems like feminism and sex positive, sex worker forward feminism has been just a part of your life and your mental state for a really long time. Yeah. I wonder what does a granola feminist think about sex work and about pornography? I think nowadays we would refer to that type of feminism as SWERF, sex work exclusionary radical feminism. And unfortunately, a lot of people, they're also TERFs as well, which is Mm. trans-exclusion radical feminism, where it's very women born women, which I hate that term. And there was a lot of that in the lesbian community as well, which is part of why I always identified more as queer than as lesbian. I also date people all over the gender spectrum and always have. But even I found myself being shut out of lesbian feminist spaces because it was like, you sleep with guys sometimes and you wear makeup. But I was like, "Ah." (laughs) 
okay? There are different schools of thought within feminism. And so the Women's Studies Department at Western was very much based around this old school 1970s sort of feminism. And I was always the one that was bringing up more sex radical stuff. You know, I've always been curious about sexuality because it's so vast yeah. and interesting. And I knew I was queer from a very early age and I came out really young. So it's the only way I know how to be is, is how I've been, I guess. <laughs> And I remember writing a paper in my women's studies class that was about feminism and sex work. And are the two diametrically opposed? And can you be a feminist and a sex worker? And I brought in a lot of information from Annie Sprinkle, from her books, and Susie Bright, and then Carol Queen, who's another writer that I just absolutely adore. And I remember I got a good grade on the paper, but the professor, she didn't agree with anything I said and wrote all these nasty notes. And it was this condescending idea within feminism where it's, oh, if you're a sex worker or you support sex work, you've been duped by the patriarch. And it was kind of like Susie Bright who did On Our Backs, which was not for the male gaze. It was porn and it was for the lesbian gaze. And some of it was more erotic and soft and sweet. And then some of it was really graphic. And we can have all of this. We can explore all of this. It's okay. And that always appealed to me. It does seem condescending to think that sex work and porn, by definition and by necessity, can't be empowered. Right. And there's a lot of really awful porn out there. I'm not going to act like all of it's great. Annie Sprinkle, who was in the business for a long time in her writing, she says, the answer is not no porn, it's better porn. And I think the answer to being more of a feminist involved in sex work is figuring out how to do the work in a way that aligns with your ethics. And it's taken me a long time to get there and to figure that out. But after I graduated with my BA, I worked in social work for a long time in the Detroit area and then in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I worked with women at rehabs and I worked with adolescent girls in the foster care system. And then for a long time before I moved out here, I worked with women who were on probation and federal parole. So a lot of my clients and residents over the years and social work had been sex workers and everything from escorts to doms to strippers to street-based sex workers, the whole spectrum. And most of them struggled with addiction. Most of them struggled with their mental health. And to me, we need to address poverty and institutional racism. And we need to open up access to things like mental health care and health care in general. The answer to me was not to be like, oh, let's keep punishing these women or people who are doing this work. We need to make the work safe. And sometimes when people are in really dangerous circumstances doing street-based sex work, they're not there necessarily because they can go work in an office or because they want to. So my takeaway from that was we have to do what we can do to ensure people's safety, not just further stigmatize and punish people. Yeah, I think there's so much stuff out there that is just a thinly veiled attempt to eliminate sex work. Like how you couldn't be nude on Tumblr and you almost couldn't do porn on Mm -hmm. OnlyFans. I think on Tumblr, it was like, what if there's a sex trafficker on here somewhere? But it's really a thinly veiled way of just trying to eliminate sex in general. Mm -hmm. But it's like the oldest industry since forever. There's no way it's going away. Yeah, So it seems so obvious to me that if we want to protect people and if we want to make things better for everyone, it needs to be about resources and helping people and making sure that people who work in this industry 
industry are safe, not about yes. eliminating it. Cause that's, yeah, it's not going to fucking happen. Sorry. I was talking to one of my good friends a couple of years ago. And I said, what gets me every time is the amount of ego that it must take for someone to think that they could eliminate sex work, which is literally the oldest profession. <laughs> like to have that type of an overblown ego to think, oh, I'm going to wipe this out. I'm going to eradicate this. Guess what? No, you're not. And the point we're at now is let's figure out how to keep people safe because this industry is not going away. So let's like how Andy Sprinkle was saying about instead of saying no porn, we need to make the sex industry better, safer, healthier. So when I was working in social work, this is upsetting, but I think it is something that we need to discuss a little bit is, I don't know if you want to do like a content warning for violence. Yeah, no, thank you for mentioning. So a couple things. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Green River Killer. I believe I have. Yeah, but for listeners, he was a serial killer in the Northwest. Gary Ridgway, that was his name. So for years, he was killing women. Many of them were sex workers. And while I was working at the probation center, I remember when they caught him and it was all over the papers and the news. And I remember just breaking down and crying because I knew people that had worked in the Northwest and that there was a lot of awareness around that and the riot girl scene which was based in the northwest and just being aware of sex work in general and doing activism around it i knew who the green river killer was and then when they finally caught him it was this feeling of such relief but he murdered so many women and for years i remember reading an interview with a woman who'd been a stripper in the northwest and she said i don't think it's just one guy because it had gone on for so long and she was like law enforcement does not care because it's sex workers that are being murdered and i remember just being so struck by that. And so when they caught him, I was very emotional. And I remember in the local paper, they had a lot of stories about it. And he looked at the police officers while he was in court on the stand. And he said, I was doing you a favor by murdering these women. Oh my! And I remember they showed pictures of every woman that he'd murdered. They showed pictures of them. And some of them were 15 years old. They'd been runaways. It just broke my heart. I still get chills when I think about that. And then right around that same time, I was talking with one of my coworkers about it. We were reading the paper and she was really upset about it too. Her name is Kristen. And I remember we were both getting verklempt, reading about it and talking about it. And I was like, we have residents here that are always in danger. And then shortly after that, three women in Kalamazoo that were sex workers were murdered. And everyone, and I knew all of them, they'd all been my residents. One of them had signed out of the building and went AWOL from the program. And then her body was found a couple days later. So that was so upsetting to me. And I remember talking to another coworker about that. And in the community, we all thought it was one person that was murdering these women because they were all blonde. They were all Caucasian, street-based workers, and they all struggled with crack addiction. And I remember another one of my coworkers, we were talking about it and I was getting emotional as anyone might. And I said, absolutely. I just hope they catch this guy before he murders someone else. And it's really upsetting. And we had a couple of residents that thought they might've had an interaction with him and so on. And I remember my coworker, it wasn't the same one that I was with before. She said, yeah, well, at least he's not killing real people. Oh my God. Yeah. Your coworker and your coworker at social yes. work said this? Yeah. Out loud? And she was this young woman who grew up in the suburbs and I was just blown away. I said, what do you mean? He's not killing. What the f- 
Yeah. And I said, you knew every one of these women, you knew every one of them. And she goes, yeah, but it's not like they had families. They all had families. They all had families. They all had kids. They all had friends. They all had people that loved them. And I was just so shocked. It cemented that I needed to always do activism and advocacy for sex workers. Someone should not be able to get away with murdering however many women the Green River Killer got. And then to hear my coworker, you think working full time and getting to know people people who are involved in sex work or just criminalized activity and addiction would open your mind and your heart. And you would think that she would develop empathy, but I was just blown away by that. So I'm sorry. That's, that was really heavy point for me. No, I think it's really important to Mm -hmm. share these kinds of stories because I think you would hope you would think that someone in social work would have more empathy and more compassion in their heart. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a great example of the fact that even people who go through the training and even people who are employed in social work fields, I guess what I'm learning from this is biases exist everywhere. I'm really shocked to hear that was something that she said and something that you had to hear. It's disturbing. It's disturbing that someone would say that. Yeah, it's disturbing disturbing that she would say that. That she would even think it. It makes me scared yeah. because it's her responsibility to take care of people mm-hmm. who are sex workers. And for her to say that, it's really horrible. I'm really sorry that you had that experience with her. Yeah, Fuck thank her. You. I hope she's not in Europe doing art. I definitely don't think she is. That woman actually quit working at the probation center and ended up being like a mall security guard. Oh, Okay. So who knows where she is now, but yeah, being around and experiencing these women's murders just was a turning point for me. And this is when I had no idea that I would ever end up being a sex worker myself, but I was like, okay, this is part of my feminism and part of the activism that I need to do for the rest of my life, because I do have a tremendous amount of privilege. And yeah, it was a moment, (laughs) definitely a turning point where I was like, yeah, I need to be loud about my advocacy because it just blew me away that someone would think that and then say it and say it so casually. It breaks my heart to know that there are people out there who that's their line of thinking. So yeah, that's part of the reason why I'm such a loud mouth. <laughs> <laughs> about what I do and just the community in general. So yeah, and it sadly, it turned out that it wasn't one man that killed these three women. It was three different people. Oh my God. And then I had another resident who I really liked and was pretty close to. I lived in a neighborhood that was in Kalamazoo. I lived right downtown and it was on the edge of what was considered like a really bad neighborhood. That's the thing. Like I lived right downtown. So I would see a lot of my residents out and about. And sometimes I would break policy and I would do things like give them a little bit of money if they needed it or give them a ride or something because it was residents that I knew and that I trusted. And so there's this one older woman named Annette White. Her work name when she was working on the street was Anita. And I remember one time, not too long after I moved out here, I thought, oh, I wonder whatever happened to Annette. And I looked her up and I found that she'd been murdered. (sighs) And it was just absolutely heartbreaking. I cried and cried over it because she was someone that I was really close to. And she was an older lady. She was in her fifties, I think when she was murdered. And, you know, I always hoped that she would get herself together. So finding out that she'd been murdered was really heartbreaking too. And the trauma of seeing that happen firsthand really fuels me to keep going. And yeah, I, like I said, this is all really heavy. (laughs) Yes. Can I take a podcast break to give you a hug? Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Be right back. 
Hi, we're back. Gloria still just happens to be recording in my house. My house is blessed to have her in it. Okay, I think for me, and I think it's consciousness about sex work has been on the forefront of people's minds Mm -hmm. because of the whole thing with OnlyFans. I think that revealed to a lot of people how precarious the situation can be for sex workers. And I will say there probably is difference in in economics and logistics between sex work and being in porn, but there's probably quite a bit of overlap Mm -hmm. as well. But I think for people who was following that story realized that there's so many different fucking things when it comes to sex work. It's not just the dangers of doing the work itself, Mm -hmm. but to know that the rug can be pulled under you by companies like Visa and MasterCard. And even the platforms that profit off of you, like OnlyFans, are liable to turn on you. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the facets of sex work that a lot of people, I refer to people who've never done sex work as civilians. I think something that a lot of civilians don't really get is that sex work also changes your relationship to systems of power, like the government, like law enforcement, like financial institutions, banks, payment processors, etc. Even for a lot of sex workers, it's with the rent market, like in the Bay Area being as crazy as it is, you've got to show your income and to get an apartment. It's not like it's 1979 again, and you can just be like, oh, here's my depositing cash on most places. When you're involved in sex work, there's this power dynamic between you and all these institutions and sex work changes that. And I think that's something that people need to think a lot about as well, because that affects our safety. Yeah, totally. I feel like this is another consciousness awakening was just like the BLM protests. And I think people were like aware of this before, but just how dangerous cops are. Yes to people who are black, but also lots of people who aren't white. And it's funny because like I mentioned earlier, I was always informed about how dangerous and corrupt cops are from my dad, especially. And I remember when I was 16 and I first got my driver's license and I had this moment of being a dumb white girl teenager and not really thinking about my privilege. And it was a Sunday. And I remember I came home from wherever it was I was going and an older black couple that were in this really nice car in front of me, they were driving really slow. And I was this teenager. So I wanted to, of course, I was an idiot and I wanted to drive fast. And I was like trying to get around these people. And I remember I came home and my dad's like, why are you so grouchy? And I said, and I'm embarrassed by this now, but I said, why do old black people drive so slow? And then my dad's sit down, we need to have a little chat. And I was like, okay, what did I do? And he's like, you want to know why older black people drive slow? He said, listen, Most of the older Black people in this area came from the South, and they grew up at a time where if they're driving even half a micro mile over the speed limit, a cop could just pull them over, pull them out of their car, and they might end up dead. They might get beaten. And I was like, oh my God, I hadn't thought of that. I was 16 years old, and my dad was like, you know what? You need to stop and think for a second. And frankly, he said, that still happens all the time. He said a lot of older Black people, when they drive, and in every other situation, they're overly cautious and you need to be patient. Older Black people drive slowly and overly cautious because of racism. And I was like, oh, thank you for letting me know. And I think with BLM and everything that has gone on there, I was seeing a lot of people posting about, oh my God, I was driving drunk when I was 17 years old and the cop just sent me home, pulled me over and then actually had me follow him in front of my house. And if I had been Black, I might not be here now. And so I think nowadays where we can transmit information really quickly, I feel like a lot of people are recognizing their privilege more, hopefully. Yeah, I guess I just realized that the institutions are not for everyone. Institutions right. are really for white people who are mm-hmm. for wealthy people who live in nice mm-hmm. zip codes, who have nice cars. Mm. who send their kids to nice schools. It's to protect their comfort and not to protect Mm. people's safety. 
this is like a side note, is also we see people getting more upset about property destruction than they are about actual violence against Black and Indigenous people of color. I think that's something that I've known about for a long time and seeing other people have that kind of awakening moment where they're like, why are you upset about the Nike store getting its window broken? This young Black man lost his life and he's the fifth one in however short of a period of time. And yeah, I think it's good that people are having these conversations now. I'm seeing that happening a lot more than I did when I was growing up. But in regards to OnlyFans and what went on recently, I know we follow each other on Insta and I've never been on OnlyFans. It's not for me, but I know a lot of people who are and have been and they enjoy working virtually. It is a modality that works really well for them. And so I got really pissed off when I saw so many civilians making jokes about, oh, OnlyFans got shut down. Now these girls are going to have to get a real job. People are losing their sole or main source of income. How is that funny? How's that different than an auto plant getting shut down and people losing their jobs en masse? It's not funny because it's sex work. It's okay for you to make jokes about it. Can you explain to me how this is funny? And it's totally the people who are like, oh, they closed down the car company and now these jobs are going to Mexico or China and they're super upset about that. Ugh, that's really frustrating. I didn't see too much of that because I think most of the accounts I follow are pretty sex positive, but I have seen people comment on stuff like that and it was really disappointing to see. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course there was such an uproar that OnlyFans reneged and were like, oh, whoa, wait, wait, oh, 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 no, no, oh, sorry. But at the same time, the friends I have that were using OnlyFans are like, yeah, I'm going to make a transition to other platforms because I can't trust them. Yeah. And when you really dig in and like why OnlyFans was doing that was going to be cutting off explicit content. And you look at who is behind that. Okay. MasterCard was behind that. And then who is behind MasterCard? It's all these really scary evangelical Christian groups that are supposedly anti-trafficking, but they're not. They're just misogynist. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it when people slap anti-trafficking as it's like the shield they sit behind and underneath their shield is like a sword mm-hmm. that just says, I fucking hate women. I hate sex work. Mm-hmm. I feel like I see that a lot is a bunch of people just being like, but the children. Yeah. I feel like I don't even need to say it, but I am also against child sex trafficking and human trafficking, oh, yeah. but you're affecting many people mm-hmm. whose safety is also important. I was reading about how shutting down avenues, what was the website called? Back Redbook? Redbook? And Backpage? Backpage. Backpage. I was like, it's not Backdoor. Backpage is, sorry, is that it takes these women who were able to screen for clients, who are Mm -hmm. able to communicate Mm -hmm. with each other on a platform to suss out shifty clients and protect their safety and their community safety. And all these people either have to be back on the streets or they have to employ a pimp and that makes it less safe for them. It takes out money that they probably need because we have to have money to be fucking alive in this country. Yes. Anyways, think about that anytime you're like, but the trafficking. And the thing is, several years ago, we had a chapter of SWAP, the Sex Workers Outreach Project in the Bay Area, and it ended up dissolving. But I was on the street outreach team. So My friend and I would go out to International Boulevard on Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, whatever. And we would hand out condoms and snacks and hygiene supplies to the gals that were out working on the street. And we'd go out to San Pablo sometimes too, but International was where most of the street-based sex workers still work. 
in Oakland. San Pablo, like in- Yeah, it's in East Oakland. I know that street. Yeah. And we would also compile bad date lists. We would take bad date reports from the women that were working. We'd write everything down. And then we would, I think once a month, we would update the bad date list. And then if we would also offer the bad date list to the women that were working. If, for example, like a bad date list might entry might be a guy in a black Yukon got me into his car and he tried to short me and then he hit me when I said I needed more money or whatever. And if they had as much information about the perpetrator, we would put it in there. And we tried to like not be too graphic because it was upsetting. So we would ask the gals if we have a bad date list, would you like one? Most of the time they did. I know that a lot of the gals out there were underage and there were also that area. Don't quote me on this because I haven't done outreach in a long time. But in that section of international, like the stroll it's called, that particular stroll, you couldn't work out there without a pimp. You couldn't just go out there. There are territories. There's a lot to it, a lot more to it than what people think about. And so there were pimps driving around, keeping an eye on their girls. And they also had runners who were guys that would watch them get into different cars. And then a lot of times the girls would give the runners their money and then the runner would take the money over to wherever the pimp. It was it's very involved, like more involved. And yeah. we were mostly left alone. People were like, oh my God, isn't that dangerous? And yeah, it is dangerous outreach work, but it's needed. And we would chat with the runners and as well as the girls working. And the pimps mostly, they recognized us after a while because we were doing this almost every weekend for a couple of years. Once they realized we were not part of some evangelical group that was trying to get the girls off the street, that we were actually making their jobs a little bit safer and easier, that we were going to give the girls as many condoms as they needed and hand sanitizer and granola bars and mouthwash and whatever. They were like, oh, leave those ladies alone. They're fine. But my whole thing is if you want to do something about trafficking, which I don't want there to be any trafficking, almost every consensual sex worker I know is very against exploitation. But the thing is, if we want to stop trafficking, we have to do something about poverty. We have to do something about the broken foster care system. We have to address all forms of racism, but I would say especially institutional racism. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I want to be trafficked. People are targeted. There are certain types of people, young people that are targeted for trafficking. And it's because of all the things I was just talking about, poverty, racism, broken foster care system, all that. And just punishing people is not going to fix anything. Yeah. Arresting someone who's underage and trying them as an adult and then putting them on probation, that's not helping anything. In Michigan, when I was working at the probation center, if someone was picked up on the street for doing sex work, they would be put on the sex offender list, the sex offender registry. And it's like, how are you, number one, that person that was working was trying to survive. And how are you helping that person by then they're going to be shut out of jobs and housing and everything else? It just blows my mind. (laughs) Yeah. I guess if I think about it, I can understand that this country is built on pretty Christian ideals. Mm -hmm. And sure, we have separation of church and state, but do we really? Do we have separation of, it's not just the church, but we don't have separation of evangelicalism from Mm -hmm. places of power that get to make decisions like this. And that's just getting worse. I feel like I see this a lot in younger people that are just, all right, if we just live to be 40, we'll just beat out the boobers and then racism, (sighs) sexism will be solved. I would love that, but no. Yeah. No. So one thing that I've seen uh, a lot of is conversations about 
legalization versus decriminalization. Mm -hmm. And I have heard that the position that most sex workers have is that they prefer decriminalization over legalization. Is that true? Could you tell me about that? Yes. Yeah. Decriminalization would mean that law enforcement and the government would just be hands off and we would be able to work. And if it's legalized, then the government is getting involved. And we have legalized sex work at the brothels in Nevada and everything there is so tightly regulated. I have never gone to Nevada to work. I've thought about it because it does seem fairly safe in a lot of ways. But the thing is you have to register with the government there. You have to also, the, the brothels there, they really nickel dime the workers, you know, so you have to pay for everything. They all offer the resort like setting, but it's like, yeah, then you're having to pay for all your food and your room and board. And so most of the friends I've had that have gone to work in Nevada have said they either broke even, they only made a little bit of money, or in some cases they ended up owing at the end of their stay. And then it's also, it's in your work history. It's in your employment history that you wouldn't work right. at this brothel. And I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but I know for myself, I don't want it in my employment history that I've been a sex worker. I'm fairly out and open, but I just don't want that on my permanent record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, you can trust the people in your mm -hmm. life to be cool and compassionate. Right. But as we've established, pretty hardcore in this episode already, you can't trust everyone. Right. You certainly cannot trust institutions. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, decriminalization, I think is the answer. I definitely think that's the answer for why well, I remember when I was in college, I didn't know anyone who'd worked in Nevada at that point. I didn't know that much about it. And I was like, oh, it works in the brothels in Nevada. And so we should just legalize sex work and regulate and tax the hell out of it and use the tax money to fund positive programs for social change and la la la. That was my idealistic 20-year-old feminist self that didn't actually know. Now that I've learned so much more in the ensuing years and especially knowing people who did work in the brothels are like, nah, man, it sucks. Like you don't make any money. Yeah. I had a friend that in the 90s, she worked in the brothels and she's like, yeah, I did really well. She said, I did great. And she's like, I went back recently and things had changed so much and I didn't make any money at all or made like a tiny little bit. And I've also heard from clients who've gone to brothels in Nevada that it's not an enjoyable experience for them oh. because it's so tightly regulated. Yeah. And that there's a camera in the room and everything gets recorded and everything is timed. Everything's timed down to the minute. If you go over five minutes, go over your session appointment time. If you go five minutes over without extending, then the provider gets docked. And then so usually oh. she has to ask the client for more money. I've had a few clients tell me it was something that they just did it for the novelty of it, but they were like, nah, this isn't very much fun. Yeah. That's really good to know. And we've talked about there isn't as much separation of church and state as I'd like to see. Mm -hmm. And if the state is running these brothels, then that is sure as hell going to suck. I'm just trying to say that yes. in a cool way, yeah. but it's not coming to me. It just seems like it's going to suck. Yeah, that's the best, most succinct way to put it. I feel like once the government gets their hands on anything, because we have so much bureaucracy and red tape, and I know that yeah. from working in social work, that it's so hard to get anything done that the government is involved in, that it's just, yeah. So decriminalization is definitely the way to go. There's also the Nordic model which I don't know anyone who works in the sex industry that likes that idea either, which is, I think that's how it was done in Norway, which is where the client is criminalized. You can sell sex, but it's against a lot of buy it. So the client can get arrested and then the provider will get let go. And how does that make any sense? That creates a lot of scarcity. And also if a sex worker is harmed or attacked, she still can't go to the police because they'll arrest. Yeah. 
And it'll be like, oh, we're arresting him for not for attacking you, but just for buying sex. It's just very, I don't know. Whenever someone brings up the Nordic model and just know. <laughs> yeah, no fair. I think this is the interesting thing where if people want to stop sex work or protect sex workers, it really does seem to be about, you can't just like take away their income stream. Right. You can't just leave them out on the streets without any kinds of protections. From what I'm seeing, I don't feel like you can do like an adequate job with policy or with a legislature without talking to sex workers. Yeah. Like getting their hot takes on what they need and what could be done for them. And with FOSTA-SESTA, something I ran up against a lot with FOSTA-SESTA and with Kamala Harris becoming vice president, because that really upset me. I voted for Biden and I had voted for Harris before because the choices were vote for Harris or vote for some Republican white dude. Uh, Harris does not have my best interest in mind, especially as a sex worker. She's done a lot of really messed up things. But people that were like really excited just because she's a woman, she's a woman of color, they were like, would you rather? Yeah, because Trump just respects sex workers so much. That's not the point. I'm having to vote for someone who's done irreparable damage to my community. And the thing is, a lot of people were saying, she admits that she made a mistake with Foster Sesta because she wrote part of it. And then she also really pushed it. And she has a history of just being horrible to sex workers. And okay, making a mistake is ordering mayo on your sandwich when you really wanted mustard. It's not instituting this policy that literally has caused deaths. And okay, if she admits she really foobarred with Foster Sesta, foobar meaning fucked up beyond all recognition. If she, that's one of my favorite expressions. Love if that. she admits that this was a big foobar and that all these other people in government are like, oh yeah, we screwed up with that. Why the hell haven't they overturned it yet? Yeah. What's going on with it? Where are we at with that? Are we making any progress with getting this reversed? And nothing's happening around that. So the government doesn't care about us really. And I think also with my coworker making the comment about the women that were murdered, that was so incredibly disturbing. That just cemented to me that most people, and with the Green River Killer, most people don't view sex workers as real people. Not even viewing sex work as a real job. They don't view sex workers as real people. And that's something that I'm always confronting in people. I know it makes people uncomfortable, but you've got to stop and think this is a person trying to earn a living. And it's not some abstract. And I think that's part of the reason why I've always been pretty out as a sex worker. What can people do to support and protect sex workers? Just civilian people. What do we need to do? Well, I think the main things that you can do is just listen to sex workers with an open mind. Take us seriously. And there are a lot of great resources out there on social media. There's actually a podcast about sex work that's by and for sex workers or made by and about sex work that I really love called Old Pro, (laughs) (laughs) which is really great. Maybe we can do a link to it. I will completely throw a link in the show notes. I would say if you're somebody that likes to read, please seek out books written by sex workers. A lot of sex workers are artists as well. Buy art made by sex workers. Find as many documentaries as you can. And when I was finding out about all this stuff, there really wasn't an internet and definitely not like there is now. Like the internet was in its infancy when I was in my um, early 20s in college. And I was spending a lot of time at the library and just 
finding resources and it made a big difference to me. So I would love for people to just consume work and information made that's put out there, made by sex workers, put out there by sex workers. I think that's really important. Like I was saying, the friend of mine, he was like, oh, I watched the Bunny Ranch reality show. That's not real. That's not something that was made by sex workers about sex work. And some authors, like one author that I really love who lived in the Bay Area for a long time is Michelle T and it's spelled T-E-A. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but she did sex work for a long time and she wrote a lot about it and she did not have the best experiences, but I love her work. I think it's important to get as many different perspectives as possible, as many as you can. If you meet a sex worker, if someone outs themselves to you as a sex worker, I think it's really important to always be respectful. Don't ask questions. Oh, it's the grossest thing you've ever done. Yeah. The grossest thing I've ever done is engage in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To just take sex workers seriously, listen to us, try to find out what's going on in your area, your city. If you live in a major city, there might be like a a group you can find out about an activist group. Like here in the Bay Area, we have BAWS, Bay Area Workers Support, and they do a lot of community education and they do a lot of fundraising to distribute like grant money and things like that to sex workers in the area who are struggling. So I think that's really good. Like the St. James Infirmary in San Francisco, which is the only occupational health clinic in the world for sex workers, please donate to them. I can't stress that enough. Go look at their website and they do a lot of great stuff for harm reduction, just for the community as a whole. Just, yeah, I guess that's my advice is take in as much information as you can from as many different perspectives. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm going to include information about all of that in the show notes. And you have been so kind as to show me a couple books that you own. And I'm going to link those in the show notes as well. So people can get themselves educated about this. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I'll talk to you later. It's been great to be here. Okay. Bye. Bye. If you like the best is yet to come, check us out at yettocome.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yettocome. This podcast was made in association with WOW. WOW, or We Are Half the World, is an organization dedicated to cultivating empathy for the Asian immigrant experience. We do this by telling stories and uplifting the voices of Asian artists. You can find us at wow.org. That's W-A-H-W dot O-R-G. Our theme song is Stand By by Himeko. You can find more of their work by searching for H-I-M-E-K-O on all major streaming platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.